Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this word. And Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be with us. Lord, I do pray that you will take my feeble words. And Lord, I pray that they will be your word. And they will speak your truth. Lord, I pray that you will open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears to hear from you. And Lord, I pray that we will be changed. I pray that we will be changed as we hear your word preached. Lord, that we will see you. Lord, we pray that we will know you better. We will love you more. And above all, Father, we pray you will be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we often discuss, the Christian life is is sort of like walking on a narrow path. Narrow path with a ditch on each side of us. And these ditches, they represent the errors into which we can fall. And oftentimes, in, in an attempt to avoid one of these errors, we move, move, move so far away from it that we fall off the other ditch into the other error. And the classic example of these two ditches are the ditch of legalism and the ditch of antinomianism. In legalism, that seeks to earn our salvation based on our ability to keep the law. And legalism leads to pride. It leads to arrogance. It leads to our thinking that our standing with God is based somehow on our own performance. And thus we are superior. Superior to those who are not as good as we are at keeping the law. And legalism makes us harsh. It makes us judgmental towards those that we see as inferior to ourselves. And legalism comes from having really a complete misunderstanding about God's overwhelming requirements in his law. And us also having a vastly overinflated opinion of our own ability to keep this law. The legalist is, is out of touch both with God's righteous requirements and with his own ability to keep that requirement. And if he truly understood, if he truly understood either one of these realities, rather than displaying pride and, and, and arrogance, he would be plunged into despair and misery. But oftentimes, legalists don't judge themselves against God's law, God's perfect law. What the legalist does is judge himself <coughs> by his relative abilities compared with others. He looks at others and says, well, I'm better than that person. So that's, why, that, that's where his, his, uh, his sense of pride comes from. His sense of security comes in. And frequently, what will happen is the legalist will oscillate. Oscillate between pride and arrogance when they compare well to others and compare well to those around them, and then oscillate to depression and despair when they compare poorly with those around them. Now, the gospel of grace clearly opposes legalism. As I frequently say from this pulpit, you got to first get them lost before you can get them saved. In other words, in order to appreciate the good news of the gospel, we must despair in the bad news of our total inability to keep God's law, to meet God's standard. We must first understand that we are condemned under the law before we can even see that we have a need for the gospel, before we can see it and then see the beauty of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus does what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus does for us what we could not do for ourselves. God's perfect law requires perfection. It requires perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. Obedience from us under the penalty of eternal separation from God, eternal punishment. R.C. Sproul calls each one of our disobedience to God, he calls it cosmic treason against God. 
And every sin is an act of cosmic treason against God. But Jesus, Jesus fulfills God's law perfectly. And he does it in our place. And he takes the punishment that our cosmic treason deserves. And this transfer becomes ours by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And this, this is the gospel. Jesus takes our place. Jesus does what we could not do. That is the gospel. But the problem comes, and this is where the opposite ditch comes in, is that in an attempt to move away from legalism, what we do is we reject any attempt at all to keep God's law. In fact, what we do is we oppose God's law, and we fall into the ditch of antinomianism. And antinomianism simply means against the law. And the danger of of antinomianism is that it appeals to our natural fallen desire to sin. It, It appeals to our natural desire to rebel against God, rebel against his law, reject his law. And it does it with a sense of self-righteousness. Not only are we, we sinning, but we are doing with a sense of self-righteousness. We're doing with a sense of superiority. I am superior to those legalists. All the while, I'm sinning. And it says I have Christian freedom. It says I don't have to tithe. That's for the legalist. I'm under grace. I'm not under law. Which translates that I can selfishly keep all my money and spend it on myself rather than participate with the work of the kingdom. The antinomian says, I can overindulge my physical appetites, whether it is sex, whether it is alcohol, whether it is tobacco, whether it is food. I don't need to show temperance. I'm under grace, not under the law. And antinomian also leads to the same pride and arrogance as does legalism. And ironically, rather than being opposite errors, both legalism and antinomian are just different sides, just different expressions of the same error. And both are based on an unregenerate mindset and a misunderstanding of God's law. See, the legalist sees the law as something that he can keep. And thus, it's a source of pride. It gives him a sense of superiority over others. Now, the antinomian, he recognizes the law as something that he cannot keep. So he rejects it. And this realization, this then becomes his source of pride of the antinomian's sense of pride and superiority over the legalist. He recognizes something that the legalist doesn't recognize. But both are doing the same thing. Both do not understand the purpose of God's law. But the Christian, the Christian understands that he has no power to keep God's law and that he must, by faith, trust in Christ, trust that Christ kept the law from him or for him. But the big difference is that the truly born-again believer does not reject the law, but rather the truly born-again believer loves God's law. So why? Why does he love God's law? Because the law shows us Jesus. The law shows us God's holy character. The law then becomes for us a guide, a guide for us to become like Jesus. It shows us how we are to live, how we can both please God, how we can glorify God, and how we can most enjoy him, how we can most enjoy life. See, the law is is no longer something to be feared. Rather, the law is loved. It is our joy. Now, although we cannot keep it perfectly in this life, and if we are in Christ, failure to keep this law will not condemn us. Nevertheless, nevertheless, we strive to keep this law. And as we grow in our sanctification, as we grow in Christ-likeness, we will more and more be able to and more and more be willing to keep this law. 
And unlike the legalists, our actual keeping of the law will not lead to arrogance. It will not lead to pride, but rather it will lead to joy. It will lead to humility, and it will lead to a greater compassion on those who are striving and struggling to keep the law and a desire to help them come along. So why did I spend so much time talking about legalism and antinomianism and these two common ditches that the church has fallen into? Well, it's because we see a subset of these two ditches in today's passage. Or maybe more accurately, we see a disguising of these two ditches in a way that really puts even mature Christians into the danger of falling into these ditches. So rather than legalism and antinomianism, these ditches that we see here in this Proverbs passage are ruthlessness and laziness. And these verses that we look at here in Proverbs 6 They give us both examples and specific warnings to keep us from falling into these two ditches. So the first ditch that we're warned about here is, I think, far by and far the more common one for us Christians to fall into. In fact, I think that this is really the default ditch that we are drawn to. And I think naturally we we stay away from the the other ditch, but the other ditch can can often be used to to pull us away from the, the first ditch. And before we know it, we've actually fallen into the second ditch. Well, the first ditch that, that's addressed in this chapter is the ditch of laziness. Laziness. Again, this is most likely the ditch that, that each one of us in this room would gravitate toward. It's, it, uh, we see this playing out in the first five verses of this chapter. And what this does, this involves a person who is undiscerning, who is naive about evil. Uh, evil in the world. And, and he, he's not like Jesus. Jesus gave a command to his disciples. He said, for we are to be as wise as serpents, but as harmless as doves. In fact, I think this statement, be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves, could really summarize the principles, both in the sermon and in, in this section of this chapter in Proverbs. So the specific situation here is a person who has put up security, who has put up a pledge for a stranger. So what does this mean? Well, we can think of it as co-signing a loan. We, we know if, if someone's going to buy a car, you have a child that doesn't have any credit, you're going to buy a car, you'll co-sign the loan for the child. Well, this is co-signing a loan for someone who is a stranger, someone we do not know. So basically what is, what is being done is the foolish thing of guaranteeing a financial obligation for another. And this is always a dangerous situation uh, because what, basically what we're doing is we're taking a financial risk for something that is beyond our control. But it's even more risky if you don't know the person for which you're making this guarantee. You're signing, I will take care of this debt that this person has, who I don't know. I don't know if this person is good for the debt. And if the person defaults on the debt, then I am obligated to fulfill it. This is a foolish thing to do. And there are many people who, that, that are simply out to scam someone, to take advantage of our generosity. And Christians are frequently a target, a target of these scams due to our generosity, due to our desire to help others. Now, as Christians, we are to help others. We are to be generous. But we must be diligent to not knowingly be scammed. And this takes effort. This takes work. This takes diligence. And there will be times, despite our best efforts and despite our due diligently, that we still will be scammed. This is not what this is talking about. We can never be 100% certain of anyone. So we must always err on the side of generosity, knowing that occasionally we may be scammed. But what this is warning about in this passage is being willfully ignorant. 
It's failing to do this due diligence. What this is warning against is laziness. And the instruction given in this passage is for the person who finds himself in this situation, who was lazy and, and was not doing a due diligence and did something really foolish, what the, what the warning, what the instruction given is to get out of the situation, is to work hard, to take initiative, to do everything that must be done to get out of this vulnerable situation. And this takes effort. This takes diligence. Effort and diligence, if expended earlier, would have kept the person from getting into this situation in the first place. In verse 3, the text says, go, hasten, plead urgently with your neighbor. It says to give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. And these words denote urgency of the situation and the effort that, that must be expended to, to attempt to get out of the situation. It's, it's, it's kind of like the, the author is shaking a naive man out of his slumber to get his attention. And the words are really meant to be like, like a swift kick in the pants to get a man moving. Then, then in verses 6 through 11, this gives us the general principle to guard against this type of laziness. And here we're given this analogy, this analogy of the ant. And it says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. See, the ant doesn't need to be told by a chief. The ant doesn't need to be told by a ruler what needs to be done. The ant instinctively knows what it needs to do. The ant gathers the food when the food is available. It, it also knows not to eat all the food that's available, but put store, some in stores for winter. But the lazy person, the person who's lazy, will not think for himself. That's the problem. He won't think for himself. The lazy person will only do what he is told. The, the lazy person will only do the bare minimum. And I remember when I was a kid, <clears throat> my dad would tell me to do something. And I would do only the bare minimum. I, I didn't want to think. I would just, like a robot, go and do only what he said. And I would not take any ownership in the job. And if I ran into something unexpected or something that my dad didn't, uh, explicitly tell me to do, I would just stop working. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't even think of it. <clears throat> and then I would wonder why when my dad came to inspect the work, I would be criticized. But as I got older, I would then ask myself when I did a job. And I, would, I remember specifically saying when I did a job, what would dad say? What would dad say to this? And then I would go through my mind and I would anticipate my dad's criticisms as, as, as the ways I accomplished the task, if I, if I accomplished it to his, his standard. And when I did this, I would see things that I should do. I, I would take initiative. And instead of getting criticism, I got praise. I got well done. Well, this is a type of initiative that we are to show as Christians in our work. We are not to be lazy. We are not to do the bare minimum. We are not to do only what we are told. We are to, we are to think. We are to anticipate. We are to, we are to be proactive in our work. Continuing with verses uh, 9 to 11, we're given a general principle. It says, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. And this is the problem with laziness. Laziness is addictive. right? We all need rest. We all need sleep. But rest and sleep is all that the sluggard wants. The sluggard, all he's, all, he's always tired. He never does any work. 
See, sleep is sweet and it's refreshing after a long day of hard work. But sleep is also addicting, sleep during the day. Sleep saps us of the, of the activation energy that we need to do work. And we don't enjoy, this is, this is really the, 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 the really sad thing about laziness, we don't enjoy it. We're not enjoying laziness. In fact, we're miserable when we're lazy. But the problem is we can't seem to get the momentum to break this cycle that we're in, the cycle of lethargy. And the result of this habitual habit, uh, this uh, habitual laziness, is poverty. Poverty. Poverty as if we were robbed, as if we were robbed by, by an armed bandit. That's what the text tells us. We will be just as, as poor as if we were robbed. And these first 11 verses, they're intended to get our attention. They are meant to, to wake us up from our laziness-induced stupor and to get us to action. But there's also a danger. There's also a danger that may occur when we are awakened from this laziness-induced stupor. You see, in our attempt to avoid the ditch of laziness, we may be tempted to fall into the opposite ditch, and that ditch of ruthlessness. See, when we suspect that we've been taken advantage of by, by putting up security for a stranger, we may be tempted not just to protect ourselves, not just to, to get out of the situation, as the, the author of Proverbs says, but we may be tempted to strike back. We may be tempted to, to hurt that person. Or even worse, we may be tempted to take advantage of someone else. Someone took advantage of me, I'm going to take advantage of someone else. We may take that... that uh, predatory, do unto others before they do unto you attitude. And basically what happens is we become the bad guy. We become the bad guy. And this attitude may be as wise as serpents, but it neglects Jesus' second part of his command to be as harmless as doves. See, it's easy to, 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 to do nothing and be walked all over, or it's easy to fight and, 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 and go for, for, for the juggler vein and, and try, to, try to kill your enemy. It's hard to be as, as, as uh, wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. But that's what Jesus commands of us. And this falling into this opposite ditch is exactly what the re this rest of this passage, verses 12 to 19, warns against. So look at verses 12 to 15. It says, A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech. He winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. With perverted heart, he devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. See, nothing motivates us to action better. Not, nothing gets us out of this lazy stupor than this feeling, this, this anger that we have because we are taken advantage of. Right? We, when we realize, this person took advantage of me. I'm really now mad. And this anger, this anger may begin with only an intention to seek justice. But it soon spirals out of control. Soon, rather than seeking justice, we seek advantage. And before we know it, we become what we are fighting against. And this section is a warning against becoming this worthless person, becoming this wicked man, becoming the bad guy. And it's a warning against Speaking with crooked speech. This basically means it's against lying. See, winking with our eyes, signaling with our feet, <clears throat> pointing with our finger. These are all methods used to deceive, to deceive another. They are means to be deceptive. And they are wicked and they are not to be practiced 
by the godly. Rather, we are to be truthful. We are to be above board in all our actions. And you see how this is so much harder? It's easier just to say, play the same game, or it's easy to get taken advantage of. It's difficult not to get taken advantage of, but not to take advantage of another. And that's what we are called to do as Christians. Verse 14 recognizes that these actions, where, they, where, where the source of these actions are. And the source is a perverted heart. A heart that seeks evil. See, for the Christian, our desire should always be to glorify God. Our desire is to make God known. And we do this, the way we do this is by emulating God's character and proclaiming his word, proclaiming his gospel. Our goal is both God's glory and the internal good of our neighbor. Not, not to take advantage of our neighbor, not to, to, to press our personal advantage. But you see, the wicked person, the wicked person does not seek God, does not seek to do the good for their neighbor. Rather, they seek to sow discord. They seek to, to sow dissension among others. It seeks to make others look bad so that we can look good. Others look weak so we can look strong. It go, it's, it's, it's a desire to promote ourselves, to profit ourselves, make ourselves look good. And when we do this, we go from being right to being wrong. We go from being on God's side to being God's enemy. And God will not tolerate this wicked rebellion. And we see the result in verse 15. It says, therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. And this is not the way we want to go. We have fallen now into the other ditch. The last four verses make it very clear that this ruthlessness is abhorrent to the Lord. He specifically hates this way of thinking. These verses say, the, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. And these are the seven things that are abomination to the Lord. And the first one is pride. Pride. There's a pride in ruthlessness. We somehow think that we deserve, we're we're better than someone, we deserve to take advantage of another. And this type of haughtiness will be punished. The second thing is a lying tongue. See, God is a God of truth. Deceptiveness is an offense against the truth, an offense against the Lord. It is wickedness, and it will be punished. Third is violence. Hands that shed innocent blood. See, violence shows a disregard for the image of God. Image of God that is present in every human being. It profanes God's image. It's a direct attack against God's image. And it will be punished. Fourth is a wicked heart. This is the source of all the evil. These these are all the evil described. It's a wicked, unregenerate heart. And failure to repent, failure to receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone will result in eternal judgment. Fifth is premeditated evil. It says feet that lead into evil. See, it's one thing to react poorly when when evil comes to you, when it's brought to you. It's another thing to actually seek it out. It's another thing to actively look for trouble. And this disposition, again, will be harshly judged. Sixth is a false witness. And this this is similar to lying. It's a specific type of lying. It's a particular kind of falsehood. This is a direct violation of the ninth commandment. 
This is falsely testifying against another, claiming that another person has broken God's law. This, again, is a wicked sin. Seventh and last is one who who sows discord among brothers. And this is an evil committed against Christ's body. It's an evil against Christ's bride. It's an intentional stirring up of strife. It's, It's trying to make others look bad so ourselves will look good. Again, this is wicked in God's sight. And sadly, we do this so often. And this passage here warns us of of the dangers of both these ditches, the dangers of laziness, the dangers of ruthlessness, and and both are devastating. And we must strive to avoid both. We must strive to walk this center path. We must live Christ's command to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these words. Father, we ask that you give us the ability to to live like these words command us, that we can actually have the courage not to not to be lazy, not to not to be naive, not to fail to do due diligence, but protect us from from in our anger and, 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 and reacting and wanting to hurt, wanting to strike out, wanting to become what we're fighting against. Lord, we are called to walk that center path and only by your grace. Only by your grace are we able to do it. And Father, we pray that you will keep us focused on that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.